remain standing for our epistle lesson from Romans 7, also the sermon text. Give your ear to God's infallible word. <clears throat> what shall we say then? Is the law sin? Certainly not. On the contrary, I would not have known sin except through the law. For I would not have known covetousness unless the law had said, you shall not covet. But sin, taking opportunity by the commandment, produced in me all manner of evil desire. For apart from the law, sin was dead. I was alive once without the law. But when the commandment came, sin revived and I died. And the commandment, which was to bring life, I found to bring death. For sin, taking occasion by the commandment, deceived me, and by it killed me. Therefore the law is holy, and the commandment holy and just and good. Thus far the reading of God's word. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Let's pray and ask for God's blessing on the hearing and preaching of His Word. O oh God, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all our hearts be pleasing in your, sight, in your sight as your Spirit, the same Spirit who wrote these words, who inspired these words, causes us, your people, to believe them and to love them and to do them as we go from here and even as we hear it, to be those who desire to do your law, to submit to your word. Accomplish that, please, Lord, in our midst today, in each of our hearts, for the sake of Jesus Christ. Amen. Please be seated. <clears throat> Today's passage confirms what the Apostle Peter says in the third chapter of his second epistle. Peter says there that some of the things in Paul's writings are hard to understand. 2 Peter 3.16. Romans 7 as a whole and verses 7 to 12 in particular certainly aren't easy to understand. So let's at least begin with a simple point, a straightforward observation of the text. What's the key idea in this text? What's one of the words that Paul keeps repeating? As you heard me read it, what was a word that you heard over and over? Well, one of them was the word law. In verse 7, law appears three times. And then it shows up once in verse 8, again in verse 9, and a final time in verse 12. That's six instances of law in verses 7 to 12. You may remember from last week that Paul used the word law eight times in the first six verses of chapter 7. And the main thing you need to recall from those six verses is what Paul said about the law in verse 5 especially. In verse 5, Paul declared that sinful passions are stimulated or aroused by the law. When God's commandments come into contact with our sinful nature, our sinful passions are stirred up. The Jews 
were under the misconception that God gave them the law in order to lessen sin, to help them overcome sin, to mitigate sin. But Paul, as a believer in Christ now, Paul fell into that trap, but now as, as a Christian, he, he says that the law actually made Israel and all of humanity's sin problem worse. The, the law, you see, shines bright spotlights on sin, exposing all its ugliness and depravity. Does this mean the law is bad? No. In verses 7 to 12, Paul defends the goodness of the law and explains how the law is holy. It's, it's holy because it accomplishes in sinners exactly what it was designed to accomplish. Today and next time, we'll explore what God intended the law to do in bringing sinners to the end of themselves and bringing them to Christ. But what really makes verses 7 to 12 unique is not Paul's references to the law. That's, that's the, the raw general theme, but there's a specific theme. See, the law generally is not the most important term in this passage. After all, law shows up 23 times in this whole chapter in Romans 7. And, and so it's, it's six appearances in verses 7 to 12 are no big deal. No, there's another word in this paragraph that also appears six times. Did you catch it? Once in verse 8, once in verse 9. Once in verse 10, twice in verse 11, and once in verse 12. Which word am I talking about? Say it loud. The commandment, right? Okay, so in these paragraphs, in these chapters, Paul is talking about sin and death and the law and how they team up to rule Sinners, but now he's focusing in on one aspect of the law, the commandment. The crucial theme of today's text is not the law generally, but the commandment specifically. And not just any commandment, but the commandment. Paul has a specific commandment in mind. The tenth commandment, do not covet. Do not covet, that's the tenth commandment. He, he doesn't choose this commandment at random, you know, any commandment will do for my purposes here. It's not the case. Uh, now, there could be certain applications from any commandment, and we'll, and we'll see that, but not just any commandment would work as well as this one to make his point here. His entire argument rests on the nature of this particular commandment and how it functions, especially how it functioned in his life, we'll see from this text that the law, the Tenth Commandment in particular, revealed Paul's sin, ramped up Paul's sin, and resulted in Paul's death. So today and next time, that's what we'll be thinking about. So the first heading on your outline is the expected question. We've come to expect Paul's questions, right? He does this in Romans. 
Like any good communicator, Paul anticipates the objections of his hearers. Like any good teacher, he's ahead of the students, leading the parade from the front. In verse 7, he thinks to ask what others are thinking. Especially those who have not really followed what he's saying well and gotten what he's wanting them to get. What shall we say then? Is the law sin? Now, let's just pause for a second. It's important for us to be clear about what Paul means when he refers to the law generally here. And we've, we've established in previous sermons that he's referring to the law that God gave to Moses on Mount Sinai back in Exodus. But we need to narrow it down a little more than that. The, the law of Moses had different, we could call them dimensions, aspects. Some of the laws were strictly or at least primarily ceremonial in nature. Examples of laws that were strictly or primarily ceremonial in nature are the sacrifices and circumcision and the Passover and the new moons and the, the washings, the ceremonial washings and the holy days and Sabbaths. The death and resurrection of Christ brought the ceremonial aspect of the law to an end. The ceremonial laws were never binding on all of humanity. They were only binding on Israel, but now that Christ has come, they're not binding on anyone. The ceremonial laws belong to the shadows and elements of the old covenant rather than the substance of the new covenant in Christ. Now, I'm not saying that they don't teach us something, that they don't instruct us and train us in righteousness. They certainly do. But we must read them and understand them in their context, understanding their purpose and the storyline and the redemptive history of God's people. Paul's talking about a different dimension of the law. Sometimes it's referred to as the moral law. The moral law is the body of God's righteous standards that apply to all humans at all times in all places. The moral law existed before God gave Moses the law at Mount Sinai. And it continues to exist after Jesus came and fulfilled the law of Moses in his life, death, and resurrection. So the moral law is not tied to the law of Moses, but it is manifested in the law of Moses. It is displayed in the law of Moses in a particularly helpful way, indeed in an inspired way. The Mosaic law is God's personal revelation of his righteous standards. The law of Moses is an inspired, infallible record of God's holy character and God's holy values and God's holy requirements for humanity. So 3,500 years ago at Mount Sinai, God dictated and even wrote down with his own finger his universal principles of morality. The New Testament repeats what we might call the moral law. It reiterates God's righteous standards for holy living, which means we can find God's universal laws of morality, his principles <clears throat> for us in either testament. So when Paul asks, is the law sin? He means more specifically, is the command not to have other gods sin? Is the command to honor your parents 
sin, right, because of what it does in us, because it triggers these desires to not obey. Is the command not to lie or steal or murder or commit adultery sin? Is the command to be holy as I am holy sin? Is the command to love God and love others, love your neighbor as yourself sin? Is the law of God in the Old Testament and in the New Testament now reiterated in the New Testament sin because of these somewhat negative things that it accomplishes in a sinner? Well, the question is to be expected, again, especially by those who have misunderstood Paul's teaching so far in this letter. The, the logic behind the question, as I've, as I've hinted at, goes like this. If God's holy standards particularly as they're revealed in, in the Word of God and the Law of Moses in this context. They didn't have the, the New Testament as we do now. If God's righteous commands stimulate sinful passions, if their effect on sinners is to increase transgression, as Paul says in one place in Romans, then isn't it also true that the law itself is just a big negative, even sinful? Well, this leads to Paul's emphatic denial. May it never be. We've heard this one before, right? Not the first time. This, this phrase is the most emphatic way of saying no in Greek. May genoita, no way, certainly not, not on your life. The old King James puts it, God forbid. It's one of the few places where the King James kind of does a paraphrase just to try to get at the emphatic nature of this phrase. And Paul uses this, this phrase ten times in Romans to express adamant rejection of some idea or the other that he knows his audience is thinking. No way, a thousand times no. One commentator paraphrased it. Are you crazy? So just get that idea out of your head right now because there's no, no truth to it whatsoever. God's righteous standards for holy living, His law, His commandments, His rules, His precepts, as they are revealed to us in the Word of God, are holy. They're perfect. It's not the law that's sinful. It's human sinful nature, the flesh, that's sinful. The law doesn't cause sin. Sin causes sin. And, and when the law comes into contact with my Adamic flesh, my old nature in Adam, the old me, my sinful nature, the law doesn't create sin at that moment. It only exposes and stirs up the barrels and boatloads of sin already there in my heart, hidden in most cases in my heart. Now, this takes us to the third heading and really to the heart of what Paul's saying, at the heart of this passage, this paragraph. From the end of verse 7 through verse 11, Paul gives an extended explanation of why the law is not sinful. And he does this in part by explaining why 
the law is good, why it's still valuable today, why it's, it's as holy and righteous as it ever was. Paul sort of plays the role of defense attorney in this passage. He's defending the law against the accusation of being sinful. And his approach here is, is a lot like Matlock's strategy. Everyone older than I am knows, remembers Matlock, right? Maybe some of you even a little younger if you watch reruns. Everything I know about criminal law I learn from the television series Matlock, which was a, a mystery legal drama show that began in the 1980s, began running in the 80s. And the main character was Ben Matlock, a, a criminal defense lawyer, and nearly every episode climaxed with a dramatic courtroom scene in which Matlock would accomplish two feats simultaneously. He would secure an acquittal for his client, the defendant. He would you know, get a not guilty verdict from, from the jury, and he would accomplish this by dramatically identifying the real perpetrator who was often present in the courtroom somewhere. So he, he sort of played the role of, of you know, defense attorney and prosecuting attorney in, in a sense, each episode. And in one fell swoop at the end of, of each show, he would get his own client off the hook and at the same time prove to everyone in the courtroom and watching on the TV who actually committed the crime. This illustration, I trust, will silence all the naysayers who, who think I'm incapable of incorporating pop culture into my sermons. <clears throat> Eventually, I'll, I'll come into the 21st century. <clears throat> the point is that Paul is functioning both as a defender of the law and as a prosecutor of sin, which is the real culprit here, the real criminal. The guilty perpetrator is not the law, but our flesh and all its sinful passions. The law is holy, we are unholy. And when the righteous law meets the unrighteous nature that we inherited from Adam, three things happen that prove the goodness of the law and the sinfulness of sin. The goodness of the law and the sinfulness of sin. Paul lists three holy activities of the law in his extended application of verses 7 to 11. The law reveals sin, ramps up sin, and results in, in, in death. And in these ways, the law serves as a sort of base of operations for sin. Sin, you see, leverages the law in its reign over humanity. It co-ops the law. But God, who always gets the last word and the last laugh, leverages all of, the, all of this for his own purposes in bringing people to his son, to Christ. Sin's use of the law reveals and, and ramps up sin and, and it leads to death. But God uses this whole process to bring his people, the elect, to a meaningful knowledge of their sin and a saving knowledge of their Savior. 
So let's look at the first holy activity of the law this week and come back next time for the rest. First, the law reveals sin. Nevertheless, Paul says, I would not have known sin except through the law. The law exposes sin, which is a good thing because you can't be saved, you can't be a Christian walking with the Lord apart from knowing your sin in the way that Paul is talking about here. Now, there, there's a sense in which every human knows their sin, right? going all the way back to the beginning of Romans. Everyone knows God, Paul says, and everyone knows they're under judgment, right? At the end of chapter 1. But that's not... That's not what Paul's talking about here. He's talking about a different knowledge of sin, a deeper knowledge of sin. He, not just generally that you do some shady things from time to time and that, that probably the, the maker of, of the universe isn't happy about. He's talking about knowing your sin deeply, meaningfully, intimately. Coming to grips with your spiritual disease is crucial to being able to receive the spiritual cure. If you go to the doctor and his tests and x-rays and scans reveal a deadly disease that's taking over your body, if, you're, if, you're, if your doctor exposes your possibly fatal health problem, he's doing you a favor. He's doing a good thing for you. He's putting you in a position where you can receive the cure. Imagine, imagine how foolish it would be in that moment, in that office, to side with your physical disease against your doctor and to ignore what he was telling you because you didn't like the way it made you feel. As a believer, Paul sees the law as a good thing because without the law... Without the law sort of beating him up, making him feel uncomfortable, Paul would not have been able to see the depths of his spiritual cancer, which Scripture calls sin, a disease that every one of us is born with. You'll notice in verse 7 that Paul says, I. He's giving his own personal testimony. He's referring to his pre-conversion days. Before Paul received Christ on the road to Damascus, God had been plowing up the soil, the hard dirt of his heart, perhaps for years, perhaps for decades, so that he was finally ready and able to receive Jesus on his way, remember, to persecute the church in Damascus. That's when the Lord finally changed his heart and turned him to Christ. The main instrument that God uses to soften our stony hearts that, we're, that we were born with, that we inherited from Adam, and, and that we love, you know, we, we, we like it that way, apart from God's grace. The, the main instrument that God uses to soften our, our hard hearts both before conversion and after we're conversion, after, while we're believers, is the law. Our hearts, by nature, are limestone. 
And the law is a, is a jackhammer that the Spirit uses to break it up, to make us contrite, to humble us before God, and to acknowledge our sin. When the excavation company that was digging out the hole in our basement uh, started the process, not, not too far into it, they, they ran into a big rock under where my and Brandy's bedroom would be, where, where it now is. To remove the rock, they, they had to rent a hydraulic hammer attachment that, that went on the, the arm of the backhoe. And, and one guy spent three full days, eight hours a day, it was painful as the person paying for this, hammering one rock with that hydraulic hammer. A, a bigger hammer would have got the, got the job done faster, but it would have cost a lot more money. And one of my neighbors who passed away last year, uh, an old timer, he used to run a bulldozer and he told me that back in his day, uh, when they came across a big rock like this, when they just would stick some dynamite in it and, and, and go on, be broken in pieces within you know, a few minutes, within the hour. The Holy Spirit sometimes uses dynamite, other times he uses a, a big hydraulic hammer, other times he uses a handheld sledgehammer. In other words, sometimes he reveals sin dramatically. Other times he breaks up the stone over a long period. If the Spirit is at work in you, then you've experienced the different size hammers that he uses to expose how far you are from his standard, from his law, how badly you break his law, not just in your outward actions, but in your heart in ways that people never see. The Spirit's hammer or dynamite is the law. It's not particularly fun when the Spirit-wielded law reveals your wretchedness, but it is something you should learn to give thanks for. Not to resist it, but to welcome it because it means God is making you more like Jesus. If you're not a believer, it means he is bringing you to Jesus. If you are a believer, it means he's conforming you into the image of Christ who obeyed the law perfectly. Paul, we don't know, we don't know the autobiographical reference exactly here in terms of the timing. Paul may be referring to some point early in his life, perhaps when he was a young child. That's what many scholars have argued. When, when his conscience began to be awakened to the gulf between his sinful actions and God's holy standards. At any rate, we discover in the last part of verse 7 that there's a specific law, the Tenth Commandment, that had a particularly profound effect on Paul's conscience. Indeed, I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, do not covet. To covet is to desire something that God has not given you. That, that he has said that you're not going to have it right now. And, and so don't desire it. It's 
It's not yours. It doesn't belong to you. To covet is to want it when you shouldn't because it hasn't been given. Coveting in, in, in the Lord of the Rings, in the Lord of the Rings, Smeagol or Gollum, he coveted the ring. It's my birthday and I want it. You remember. What's so special about the command not to covet? Why was the 10th commandment so effective at revealing Paul's sin? Well, do not covet is the only commandment that focuses explicitly on the secret urges and motivations and idols of the heart rather than the outward actions. Of course, Jesus informs us in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5 that God aimed all his commandments at the heart. Right? We misunderstand them if we think they're just talking about external realities and actions. None of God's moral law merely addresses external behavior. It's not enough to avoid physical murder and physical adultery. Jesus says that if you hate someone, you've murdered them in your heart. And if you lust after someone, you've committed adultery in your heart. But the 10th commandment is unique in that it doesn't have a physical or visible sort of counterpart or you know, aspect, application. It's, it only addresses the sinful wants and passions that take place invisibly in, in the heart. Now, now, we know that eventually covetousness leads to actions, uh, you know, like murder, as was the case with Smeagol when he coveted the ring. Covetous desires, when left to themselves, can lead a man after God's own heart. A man after God's own heart, it can lead him to become an adulterer, liar, and murderer, as was the case with David when he coveted Bathsheba. Coveting leads to outward sin, but the act of coveting itself is something that takes place in the heart. Coveting is the root of all evil. This was, this was a, an axiom, an, an accepted truth among the Jews before the time of Christ, in all their literature, they understood covetousness, coveting as the root of all kinds of evil, of all forms of evil. And I think they were correct there in that interpretation and application. It's what we see even in the Old Testament, especially in the New, as this is fleshed out for us and applied. It's where many sinful actions begin. You want something other than what God wants. You want, and this, you want to be out from underneath his law and his desires because you have other wants, other desires. And this leads you to do wicked and irrational things such as murdering your best friend and cousin or murdering one of your mighty men. If you don't think you're capable of such a thing, you're, you're not anywhere close to knowing your sin in a meaningful way. If you believe you're beyond falling as Smeagol or David or Adam and Eve or Ananias and Sapphira in Acts 5 or Peter, then sin is still dead in you. It, it hasn't sprung to life and the law still hasn't killed you in a way it needs to. You need to experience the death 
that Paul describes in verses 9 and 10. The tenth commandment was the one commandment that Paul just couldn't get away from. It's the one commandment that proved problematic for Paul the Pharisee. You know, the sort of burr in his saddle. Most of God's moral law didn't faze Paul, the Pharisee. The, the first nine commandments presented no problem to him. He kept them blamelessly, he said. At least he had convinced himself and others that he did. Outwardly, as far as the world was concerned, Paul was squeaky clean. A, a, a law-abiding Jew. He didn't worship false gods. He didn't make images of God. He didn't take God's name in vain. He observed the Sabbath every week. He honored his parents. He didn't commit murder or adultery or theft. He didn't lie. In Philippians 3, 6, Paul says that by all appearances, he was a righteous law keeper. As to, the law un or as to righteousness under the law, I was blameless, he says. Now, we know, and Paul knows at this point, that Paul was only fooling himself as well as everyone else. He didn't obey God's law blamelessly from the heart. And there was one commandment that even made it difficult for Paul eventually to fool himself. There was one commandment that revealed the deep well of sin. One commandment that exposed Paul for the wretch that he was. Don't covet. Don't sin in your heart. Don't want things you shouldn't want. Not only does the law require us not to do outwardly evil things, it also requires us not to desire evil. Christ died not only for your wicked actions, He also died for your wicked attitudes and urges and ambitions and longings that remain invisible to everyone but God. That's why it's not okay to say something like, well, I, I have this desire, but it's not sin because I don't act on it. We hear that being said, taught, preached, even in Christian circles these days. You can have desires, and that's okay. That's inevitable, but don't act on them. Well, even the desires themselves are what Christ came to die for. In two places, Ephesians 5 and Colossians 3, Paul identifies covetousness as idolatry. Ephesians 5, 5 says that everyone who is covetous, that is everyone who is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom, in, in the kingdom of Christ and God. Colossians 3, 5, put to death what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. Now, Paul's not saying here that there's no difference between the second commandment, which forbids making idols, making images of God, and the tenth commandment, which forbids coveting. He's not conflating these two commandments into one as if there's no distinctions. What he's saying is that the Tenth Commandment is the sort of invisible, internal, heart-level equivalent 
to the second commandment. Coveting is making idols, invisible idols, in your heart. Idols that you cherish and look at longingly instead of cherishing God and gazing upon Christ. Idols that you place on the throne of your heart where Christ alone belongs. Idolatry of the heart is the fundamental sin. This can come in many different forms, of course. You can love a lot of things. The, the world, the flesh, and the devil present us a lot of opportunities to set our hearts on things other than God. It, it could be a business that you're building, that, that you're trying to build up, and that's the thing that's going to bring you the most joy. It could be a relationship that you have or that you want to have. It could be a certain station in life or a place in life of financial security. There are millions of things that we have an opportunity to love more, to desire more, to delight in more than we do Christ. God and his Christ. Coveting or heart idolatry is delighting in something or someone more than you delight in God. The sin of making something other than God your greatest treasure and pleasure. The Living Bible paraphrases, trans, you know, it's not really a translation. I don't recommend the Living Bible as a, as a Bible that you read for Bible study and regular reading. It's more of an interpretation and it's hit, hit or miss on its accuracy, but in verse 7, it's helpful. It says, well then, am I suggesting that these laws of God are evil? Of course not. No, the law is not sinful, but it was the law that showed me my sin. I would never have known the sin in my heart, the evil desires that are hidden there. If the law had not said, you must not have evil desires in your heart. So before we come back next time to look at the rest of this passage, I want us to spend a little bit of time now, but I want you to spend time after today asking God to help you know your sin as you reflect on God's holy standards. Ask Him to expose your unholiness and to help you go deeper in that understanding through His holy law. And as as you read his word, even this week, and consider his righteous commandments, what he's calling you to do, the exhortations from Scripture about how you are to live before God, ask God to reveal to you the raging rivers of spiritual sewage that flow hidden, secretly, under the surface, whose source is your sinful nature, the flesh of the old Adam, your heart. Ask God to reveal the layers and depths of idolatry in your heart, covetousness in your heart, evil desires in your heart. There are many desires in there that you think you really don't do business with because you don't really act out on them, right? You've kind of got them under control. We, we you know, and but they're still there. And that's what this passage is addressing. That's what the commandment is addressing. What does the command do not covenant, do not covet, reveal in your heart?
What does that commandment reveal? What does it expose? What hidden things does it shine a light on? What do you want more than you want God's glory? Maybe even list them. Write them down. What do, what do I want, think about, love, treasure, fantasize about, obsess about more than bringing glory to God? What circumstances, life circumstances, do you desire more than you desire to be with Christ and to magnify Him in your life, whether you live or die? Is your greatest delight, the, the thought that you think about the most, the thing that brings you the most joy, something other than Jesus? Here's what you need to know about coveting, about this commandment, and how it works in our hearts. Coveting thrives in the soil of discontentment. Discontentment is the seedbed of all manner of coveting. A content Smeagol would not have coveted the ring of power. A content King David would not have coveted Bathsheba. A content Eve would not have coveted the godlike wisdom and knowledge offered to her by the serpent. A content Ananias and Sapphira, Sapphira would not have coveted the praise and admiration of the church community, which caused them to conceive an evil plan in their hearts, Peter says, even leading them to lie to the Holy Spirit. A content you would not covet comfort that God hasn't given you or respect that you haven't earned, or pleasures that are forbidden, or a schedule that isn't feasible, or privileges, or positions, or personal relationships that you think will finally make you happy and content and at ease and at peace. Here's the good news. Jesus died for the sin of not being content with him. You know, Jesus says, you're not, you, you're not content with me. You're not happy with me. You're not satisfied with me. I'm going to die for that sin of not being content with him and his father. He died for the covetousness that sprouts from the soil of your discontentment about where God has you, about how he has ordered the universe and your place in it, your lot in life. He paid for, that, for the idolatry that pollutes your heart. The raging rivers of spiritual sewage, sewage running under the surface, springing from your heart, have been paid for by the blood of the Savior so that you are, before God, clean, pure. And so because of that, if you're a believer, because of that, you are in a position by God's grace to actually apply this. You're, you're free to apply this passage to you because you've been freed from the bondage 
And you've been freed from having to get rid of the sewage yourself. God is, has done it and is doing it. So this week, allow God's law to give you a greater knowledge of your sin. Don't, don't try to avoid it or explain it away or rationalize it or say it's okay. At least I'm better than that person or maybe better than I was last year. You don't have to do that. It's paid for. It's taken care of. You're free to be honest with it, about it. To look it square in the eye and to know that it's not going to get the last word because Jesus has paid for it. Ask God then to use his law as a jackhammer or even better as dynamite. To expose your hidden idols and to break your heart, your hard heart. You're free to do it. You can find joy in this because of what Christ has done. Ask him to do this so that it ish, so that that the, the, the places in your heart where there were hidden idols now issue forth repentance and holy desires. God can accomplish this in anyone. Ask Him to show you where your wants are not lined up with His wants, where your ambitions for yourself are not His ambitions for you. Sin uses God's law as a weapon. The law is an instrument that sin uses in its reign of terror over humanity. But if you're a believer, you are not under that reign anymore. The Spirit of God uses the law to drive His children to Christ. Not just the first time, but over and over again. To the merciful Savior, where there is forgiveness for those idols to the merciful Savior who never became discontent, never coveted, never lost his joy, never desired anything more than communion with his Father. The merciful Savior who was always overflowing with contentment, always utterly satisfied with his Father, who never longed for the praise of men, who only ever wanted approval the approval of his father and therefore who was able to obey every bit of God's law perfectly on your behalf. Let's pray. Oh God, we thank you for these words that for those with the spirit stir up faith and good works. Oh Lord, accomplish that in us, your people, this morning. And for those who are not yours, who do not belong to Jesus, stir up in them a knowledge of sin that leads to death death to themselves, and life in Christ. We need you to do this work in us of bringing us to Christ and bringing us into conformity to Christ. And so please do it for his sake, for Christ's sake. Amen.